0: Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. So today is September 11th. And, you know, I really was trying to think about the best way to commemorate this day. And so our guest today is going to be Rudy Giuliani, who um, talks about what happened to him on the day of 9-11, his personal um, story from that day. And before I bring you that interview, some people might be saying, well, why would you even be talking to Rudy right now? Um, he's not the person we remember him to be. Well, I lost my fiance that day, as many of you know already. And um, he has been someone who I've had a soft spot for. I, um, you know, I'm someone who uh, has always believed that I was connected to him, even though I didn't know him. Um, and it took me months to try and locate him. I'm not kidding. Like this was the hardest guest I've ever had to book. And I finally got to him. We did our interview and we have been friends ever since. Um, My daughter was recently in a really awful accident. Rudy took the time to send a video message to my daughter, um, to tell her to get well and to just have this personal conversation with her about how he could relate to getting hurt and, um, He is just someone who, you know, clearly has gotten himself in some trouble for things that he has said and people don't agree with him. But I will say that on September 11th, he became a hero to New Yorkers, to our nation. Um, And, you know, I think that you should give this episode a listen regardless of your feelings of Rudy because it was important to me. And the way he talks about that day, um you know is is something you don't want to miss. And for me, I just want to you know, when I originally interviewed him I I figured that we would go back and forth and talk about our experiences that day. The interview kind of didn't happen that way. I wanted to let him talk. Um I speak a little bit on the on the show about my experience, but I really wanted to get out of him, right, his story. So I just want to fill you in on my loss from September 11th. Um I was a 26-year-old girl. Um, I was working at Bloomberg News at the time and I had just gotten engaged to my fiance. His name was James Andrew O'Grady. I was um, kind of like this young version of me. I was like a kid. He was 32. He was very mature. He was very funny, very gregarious, gorgeous guy, former swimmer at UCLA, super smart. Um, I had met Andy three years before we met on a blind date. My best friend at the time, Allison, um, was dating somebody in his firm and they set us up on a blind date. And it was very funny because Allison didn't know Andy and Andy didn't know Allison. And the guy that um, she was dating didn't know me, but they, the guy can, conv- his name was Kevin. Kevin convinced Andy to call me and that I was the greatest thing ever. And Allison convinced me that Andy was amazing and I would really like him. So he calls me and I got to be honest, he gave great phone. He had this amazing voice, um, this like belly laugh. Um, and I really, we spoke for like an hour and a half the first night we spoke and I, I really wanted to meet him. And I remember at the end of the phone call, he said, well, listen, the next step is we should meet in person. And if I don't find you attractive, then we don't have to speak again. And I thought that was just so honest. Um, so we decided to meet and, um, he, I just, I, it wasn't one of those things where I like fell head over heels and it was amazing. It, he didn't tell me he loved me for seven months. I mean, this was, he was like a very, I was intimidated of him and, um, I wanted someone like him to love me, but I didn't think that I would ever, you know, have someone like him in my life. I was just so honored to be around him. I learned so much from him. And when I met him, I was working at an internet company And I wanted to be like him. So every day I called Bloomberg News and I called the head of television there and I would say, or I would email her and I would talk to her and I would say, listen, if a job ever opens, let me work there. And after maybe four months of bothering this poor woman, she called me one day. She said, we have an opening on the assignment desk. If you want to come work here, I'll give you the job. And, but it starts at 5am and I'm like, I'll take it. And I was so proud of myself. And Andy spent hours a day after his work, um, teaching me about business, teaching me about business news. And my job at Bloomberg became, you know, my most favorite job ever, but it was at Bloomberg that, uh, I was, I was working there when, um, when September 11th, uh, 2001 happened. And Three weeks before we were um getting ready to go. We, we were we were living together at this point and um we were getting ready to go on a trip to Greece and um two things happened. Andy had for he forbid me to get a dog. Forbid me. So of course one day I would have to walk between Bloomberg and our and our house on 66th Street, and there was a dog um store basically a very high-end dog store called American Kettle on Lexington in Manhattan. And there was all these gorgeous puppies in the window. And for whatever reason, this one dog caught my eye and I could not leave without buying this dog. Of course. So I get home and I say to Andy, listen, if you don't like the dog, we'll return it after a week. I have all these gorgeous pictures of Andy and the dog. We named him Mickey. He was the smallest little Chihuahua with blue eyes, um, short haired Chihuahua. Um, You know, hanging out, sleeping together, like, you know, taking naps together. Um, I loved this dog so much. We had the dog um, for about, I don't know, three weeks. Um, And one day, um, Mickey started getting seizures. Long story short, we had to put uh, Mickey to sleep. I promise the story is going somewhere. So, Um, Andy, uh, I was devastated. So, Andy was with me when we, when we had to put the dog down, I was so upset. I loved this dog more than anything. I mean, I'm an animal lover in general, but I loved that Andy and I had this dog together that we both cared for. So Andy, after we put Mickey down, we went to dinner together and he said, Rachel, everything happens for a reason. And I kept saying, no, that's not true. Why would, um, there be a reason for this poor innocent dog to die. And he reminded me of something that was very true. He said, Rachel, you know, Mickey didn't know that he was supposed to live 13 years, 18 years, however long of a life he could have had. He knew that he was loved by you more than anyone that he's ever been around for the term of his life. And that was the end of his life. And he didn't know any better. There's no loss for him. He was loved and that was his time to go. And I said, yeah, okay. I mean, it made me feel a little bit better, but you know, that was kind of the end of the conversation. We were going to Greece the next week. He said, listen, when we come back from Greece, we will go look for a dog together. We will buy a dog that is a purebred that is, you know, or a rescue, something that we really um, are, are paying attention to. We're not getting it from a store. The dog ended up having distemper. That's why it died, by the way. Um, and he promised me we'd get a dog. So we go to Greece. We have an amazing two weeks together. And, um, we come back on Sunday, we go to work Monday morning. Um, and, uh, we, I, at the time, I don't know if you guys remember this cause it seems so long ago, but, um, you know, you had actual cameras and we had a disposable camera, which had, um, you know, you had to go to like a one hour photo or a photo devel- developing place to get the photos. And it actually had negatives in the, the photos, right? So we got six packs of, um, photos back. Monday night, September 10th. And we were looking through all the photos of our trip and we were having, you know, we were so happy to get these photos back. So the morning of September 11th rolls around and um, we had two bathrooms um, and I went and shower. So I had to get up for work at 5 a.m. I was still working the 5 a.m. shift at Bloomberg. And I went in the bathroom, I took a shower. I put one towel on the floor one towel around my body and one towel around my head. And I go into the second bathroom to get ready. When I came out of the bathroom around probably 4.40 in the morning, Andy was sitting on the couch in our living room and he was watching the Weather Channel. And I was gonna be late for work. So I'm kind of rushing around. And he says to me, hey, babe, uh, I wanna take those photos to work with me today. Where are they? So I give him all the photos and I sort of head to the door to, to leave. And I say, you know what? Andy, give me the, take the, um, the negatives out of the photos in case you lose them. I want to have them here, which he did. And I walked back to the door and he said, come give me a kiss before you leave. And I said, I'll kiss you when I get home. I was running late at the time. And he, the last thing he said was, um, you know, or I said, what's the weather today? And he said, it's going to be a gorgeous day. So I go to work and he calls me a few hours, maybe, you know, at 7 a.m., when he's at work finally. And he says, Rachel, I just want you to know, I'm so proud of you. You're acting like wife material already. You put, um, the towels back in the bathroom so that I had towels when I got out of the shower. And it was a constant fight between us because I would take all the, all the, um, towels out of the bathroom and he would get out of the shower and never have a towel. So told me, loved me all this stuff. And, um, anyways, we hung up and I went back to work and he went back to work. And, um, within an hour, uh, the first tower got hit by a plane. Um, and then soon after a second tower, a second uh, plane hit his tower, his was the second tower to get hit, but the first tower to fall. Um, I of course have a whole, detailed story about what happened that morning and thereafter, which is, um, obviously horrible. And I, I actually don't want to get into it now because I do want to get to Rudy's episode, but I will fast forward to a year later. I had to take a leave of absence from work. Um, the anniversary of September 11th came about and everyone had kind of moved on and was just kind of covering it, you know, like regurgitating all the news that had happened, but I couldn't handle listening to that news. So I took, um, some time off and I went to Brazil and I kind of did one of those trips to find myself. And, um, I woke up in the middle of the night. I had this dream and I had been living obviously in such a depressed state and feeling just, so miserable. Like I had every moment was a loss. Like I didn't know where I belonged. I had lost my future with this guy and I, I didn't know how to move forward. I would be in a taxi and I would be sitting in, you know, by myself, I would see the empty seat and feel like, well, Andy should have been here. You know, May rolled around. That was the date we were getting married. I thought Andy should have been here um, and should have, should have. Right. So I wake up in the middle of the night and I had this epiphany and I said, Oh my God. Mickey died. The reason that Mickey died was so Andy could be the one to teach me the lesson that Andy lived his life for the duration of what he was supposed to live. He wasn't supposed to live till he might be 80 or 90 or even 50. He was supposed to die when he was supposed to die. And I should Um, you know, appreciate the fact that I got to love him and he got to love me for the time that he was here. And he lived a full life and to not be upset by it and to just know that he was okay. And the reason that Mickey died was so Andy could teach me that lesson and say that to me so that I could move on when um, Andy died. So... To me, that's my story of my long story about Mickey dying. And um, I just wanted to, you know, let you guys know that obviously there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of Andy, but it's on September 11th that I want to remind you of this wonderful person, <laughs> James Andrew O'Grady, who lived a full life, who was the most wonderful person I knew. And I was lucky to have been loved by him. And I'm sorry if you have a loss from September 11th. I'm sorry if you have a story of grief, um, from, from someone you loved throughout your life. It obviously doesn't have to be related to September 11th, but, um, the pain never does go away, but time kind of heals. But on September 11th, that, that wound does reopen. And, you know, I, uh. I just really appreciate you guys listening to my podcast, to listening to my personal stories, which I try not to get into that much, but my guests all mean so much to me. And, um, you know, I have a method to my madness and a reason to be interviewing the people that I do. And I was honored to have met Rudy Giuliani and to hear his story from 9-11. And I hope you give this a listen um, and um, and listen to the end. It's a great story. It's a powerful story. And, um, I'd love to hear from you guys. If this was a episode that, um, that you can relate with, please, you know, um, drop me a message and, um, and listen to the Patreon and, you know, support what we're doing here because, um, we, we want to be a community for you that, um, we can all kind of communicate about stuff like this. So without further ado, here is the mayor, (laughs) the one and only mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Welcome back to Misunderstood. This is Rachel you could tell I have a really exciting episode today. I am here with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a man who took down the Mafia, cleaned up New York City, and comforted not just me but the entire nation with his presence and leadership following the attacks of September the 11th. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome you to the well, show. Thank you, Rachel. Yes, it's a thank pleasure to be being with you. Here. I've wanted yeah. to meet you. <laughs> for 22 years now, but probably longer than that. But I, uh, I have always admired you and you've been a huge part of my life. Not, not only because of September 11th, but I don't know if your team told you, but um, two days after September 11th, I went and got a dog to comfort me through my loss. And I, Andy was my fiance who I lost in September 11th and he forbid me to get a dog. I got a dog anyway, but about a week before Andy died, the dog, who we had only had for a month, he died of distemper. I bought him in a, in a pet store. I was devastated. And he said, okay, after we were going to Greece, he said, after our trip to Greece, we'll get a dog. We come home from Greece, the next day is September 11th. So I had lost my dog. I lost my fiance.
1: Where, where did he work?
0: He worked at Sandler O'Neill. Oh, okay. Um, so two days after September 11th, I went back to the pet store and I bought a dog who I named Rudy Giuliani. And I had, and this dog, I'm, t- I'm telling you, to be honest with you, was the only stable love of my life that I've had. He lasted 20, uh, almost 20 years. Wow. Yes, and so I'm going to show you a picture because I well, think good. he's that's very handsome.
1: He's a lot better looking than me. <laughs> Look at him. Oh, my goodness. Now, yeah. what kind of dog is that? He's
0: a Brussels Griffon.
1: Yeah, what a look like you're very smart too. Oh he was. You could see that you can he took see that. after you,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Like. Well, thank you. I'm very honored. Yes, yes, of course. So
0: anyways, I wanted to get into— I love um, dogs. Yeah, I know you do. You have one, right?
1: I had one. I don't have one right now, but I have
0: one. Okay. Um, So I wanted to um, talk to you about your experience on September 11th, because I feel like we obviously have that in common. We shared that day. I didn't know you, and we went through it together, but not knowing each other. Um, So I want to paint a picture for people that are listening right now or watching of— what was going on in the state of New York and, the, you know, in New York in general, in the world, Homeland Security, like give us a little bit of a, of a paint, painting of what, what life was like.
1: Well, I mean, it was um, it was the beginning of a new administration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Clinton had had his eight years and then Bush won. So we were what sort of like about eight months, nine months into the into the uh, Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Things were re- relatively, pe- uh, certainly internationally, things were peaceful. Mm-hmm. They seemed to be, although Ben Laden had been causing a great deal of trouble. I don't know if we were paying a sufficient amount of attention to it. No. And he had declared war against us, okay. which uh, I guess we didn't take that ser- as seriously as as we should. In the city, we were going through a renaissance. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we were on the cover of one magazine after another as uh, the city that had reclaimed itself, the, mm-hmm. city had, uh, the city that had come back. Um, the crime was down to the lowest levels in decades. Right. We had gone from 1.2 million people on welfare to 500,000, mm-hmm. most of them working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a city with a tremendous amount of optimism. Um, so I think that was a good thing because I think if we had been where we were when I first became mayor, depressed and 75% of the people wanted to leave the city like mm-hmm. they do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd had a harder time like dealing with it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, from my point of view, I was near the end of my term. I was, uh, uh going to figure out what I did next after Labor Day. Right. <laughs> um, because, um, I didn't, I didn't want to spend time thinking too much or looking for a job while I was mayor because mm. it creates enormous conflicts of one kind or another.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I had a few ideas of what I wanted to do. I had a contract to write a book, okay. uh, which was very substantial. I think it was a million and a half or $2 million. Right. Um, so I wasn't worried about uh, supporting myself yeah. after I got out. But I also was interested in being, I wasn't going to retire. Mm-hmm. In fact, I thought I'd work even harder (laughs) when I left. And um, so it was about as peaceful as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. The night before it rained Mm -hmm. really hard in New York, Mm -hmm. I remember it because it was um, a rain out of a Yankee game where Roger Clemens was going to try to win 20 games. Uh And I also um, went to a movie about Pee Wee Reese that night with... Pee Wee Reese's widow and Jackie Robinson's widow. Wow. Because the next day we were going to raise money uh, to um, build a statue of them. And uh, went home, went to sleep, woke up the next morning. It was a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. And it was also primary day. Okay. So it was we were having our primary elections, Democratic Party, Republican Party, mm-hmm. to nominate uh, the candidates to run for mayor to succeed me. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat primary was kind of crowded. It was like four or five people. Mm -hmm. Republican primary were really two people, Mike Bloomberg, and I can't remember who was running against him. But in any any event, I thought, okay, today is gonna be a little bit of a lighter day in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I canceled my morning meeting that I usually had at eight in the morning, Mm -hmm. made it for the afternoon. And I went and had breakfast with a friend, um, Bill Simon, and with my counsel, Denny Young, because Bill wanted to run for governor of California, Mm -hmm. and he wanted my advice. And we went to the Peninsula Hotel. Okay, in Midtown. We had a terrific uh, breakfast. and then.
0: What time was that?
1: Well, I probably got there around a quarter to eight. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, as it approached nine o'clock, one of my security people walked in and whispered to Denny Young, and Denny had a very strange expression on his face, and he said, Mayor, I think we're going to have to leave right away. There's been a, 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 a there's a terrible fire down at the World Trade Center. Um, they think a twin-engine plane hit the North Tower, Right. and it's a disaster. Right. So I got up right away and said goodbye to Bill. He, for some reason, said, uh, God bless you, which seemed kind of ominous, but... Yeah although because at that point we didn't know how bad it was right right and the minute i got out i looked up and i saw a beautiful sky and i said well this was no accident Ah. so now we have a crazy person or we have a terrorist one or the other
0: right so i I just want to say i was in midtown also i worked for bloomberg news at the time i was working on the assignment desk um my bloomberg was my boss and I went into work at 5 a.m. And the thing you remember is how beautiful that yes. day was. No, nope. not a, not, not, not not a, a cloud, cloud in the sky. Yeah. yeah. And how warm it was and gorgeous. And also for regular people, it was the first day for a lot of people bringing their kids to school, which was why a lot of people were not in the building that day. Not, not as many as would have been. Oh. Um, so they were running late that morning. Um, but I went in at 5 a.m. I remember the the weather like you are talking about. And um, I was sitting on the, the newsroom floor um, listening to what was going on. We're you know, doing the news of the day, doing our show. We had a live show. And next thing you know, I hear somebody say the World Trade Center's on fire. And I remember like you're talking about the, um, everybody assumed and thought, and the news was reporting that it was a smaller plane, a guy who probably was out there, didn't know what he was doing and flew into uh, the North Tower. So sorry to interrupt you. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. Have you ever found subscriptions you forgot about or any you paid twice for and you didn't realize it? Guys, I'm so excited to bring you some information about Rocket Money. It's an app that you can have on your phone. It helps you monitor your subscriptions and things you might be spending money on that you have no idea or have forgotten about. I did this for myself. It took me less than five minutes to get all my information in there. And then all these screens came up showing me exactly what I spend on home goods, what I spend on beauty, what I spend on food. It broke it down by category. And then I saw the subscriptions. So not only does it give you a great way to budget yourself, monitor what you're spending money on, but the biggest difference is it helps you cancel a subscription that was otherwise tricky or time-consuming. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, it monitors your spending, and it helps you lower your bills all in one place. Most people think they're spending $80 on subscriptions, when in reality, the number is closer to 200 When you're signed up for so many things like streaming services you used to watch, Free trials for delivery you don't use, it's easy to lose track of what you're paying for. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all the work for you. Rocket Money can even negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money also lets you monitor all your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. This part I personally love. With over 3 million users and counting, Rocket Money customers have saved an average of $720 a year. So stop wasting time and money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash understood that's rocketmoney.com slash understood rocketmoney.com slash understood
1: i got into my van mm-hmm. i had a man i sat in the back with denny and we started down quickly toward uh, the world trade center i tried to i tried to reach and uh, I, re- I was able to reach a few of a uh, police commissioner my deputy mayor joe loda and um but before I did, I looked, I could see the tower. Mm-hmm. And I could see a terrible fire. And it seemed to me it was worse than a twin engine plant. Yeah. Uh, immediately, uh, Jenny and I both thought, this. I think this is worse. And I got a call, I can't remember the order in which I got them, but I got a call from my deputy mayor, uh, Joe Loda, who told me it's a disaster down here. People are jumping out of buildings. Yeah. Um, and I actually thought he maybe was exaggerating a little. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe he was caught up in the emotion of it. The idea of people jumping out of the building was like yeah. was very hard to take. Uh, and, and very
0: hard to imagine of how awful things must have been for their choice to be, to jump rather than right. stay where they were.
1: Then the police commissioner, I talked to the police commissioner and uh, we didn't know what it was. But uh, we said we're going to assume it. Well, let's assume it's a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. You, you always assume the worst. We also had a trial going on uh, three blocks away from City Hall, about eight blocks away from the World Trade Center, of uh, uh, al-Qaeda terrorists. Mm. And that had resulted in my having to close down a number of blocks in the city. So we were being warned about attacks. Right. Not that kind of an attack, but attacks. Um, and we did know that if it was a terrorist attack, it was probably bin Laden. Right. Because of the focus on that trial. Mm -hmm. But at that point, we still didn't know for sure it was a terrorist attack. And as we got about a mile away, very close, I saw a big, big explosion. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a secondary explosion from the first one. And Bernie, police commissioner, called me immediately and said, a second plane hit. It is definitely a terrorist attack. I said, geez, we're at war. And he said, yep. Yeah. and um, I tried tried getting through to the White House and I couldn't so I said Bernie when I get there let's set up a command post uh, right nearby and uh, let's put in hard lines
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we need regular telephone lines these these uh, cell phones aren't working uh, efficiently and we've got to talk to the president he said um, we were, we've been able to get through and um, I think we're going to have air cover pretty soon, but we got to make sure. So I said, "Okay, well, you set up a command post, and I'll meet you, and we set the place we were going to meet, and then we, we have to we'll have to go over to the fire department command post and make sure everything is coordinated." So I got there ten minutes later, mm-hmm. well, maybe less, and um, they came up to me. They meaning my deputy mayor. Joe, Joe, and Bernie, the police commissioner, the deputy police commissioner, uh, and a group of my staff. Mm-hmm. And Joe was the first to tell me again how terrible, how terrible it was, and um, and that uh, we were doing everything we can to clear clear the area. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, now, at and- this
0: point, people didn't have the. Creativity is an awful word, but the creativity to even think that the towers could fall at this point, or did you think that there was a chance that they might?
1: You mean quickly?
0: Yeah, no. quickly or no. at all?
1: Oh no, no, I thought they could fall. You did one, well, one, well, not not at that point. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen how ba- quite how bad it was. Right, right. Um, but by the time I left uh, the command post, the fire department, I knew I knew they were going to come down mm. at some point that day or later, but in stages. Okay. Not. Um, implode Mm -hmm. so i went to the fire department i took the police commissioner with me i could see that they were setting up a headquarters in a merrill lynch uh uh field office okay they threw the people out people seemed very happy to get out (laughs) and uh and they were putting in these big trunks these big hard lines so i felt pretty secure that we were going to get through and i said well the first thing i'm going to do is i'm going to go see the fire chief. Because he's running this, mm-hmm. and let's make sure he's got everything he needs. So we walked about three blocks, and we got right below the the North Tower, and Chief Gansy was there, with his the fire department fights a fire, uh, with the commander as close as he can get to getting a full view of the fire. Yeah. He has like a board,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, like a podium. And on that podium is a recreation of the fire. It's uh, where he can move his men around. Yeah. And he, that's what he was doing. And he already had a lot of people in the building. So I said, when I got there, I looked up, and I saw a guy jump. And I tell you, it was, it was really a traumatic experience watching this person jump, watching him come all the way down. And... Um, I grabbed Bernie's arm and I said, Bernie, this is different than anything we faced before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a plan for this. We're just going to have to make the best decisions we can and then ask God to make them right. right. And he said, well, at least we got a lot of experience.
2: Yeah.
1: And I said, oh, well, okay. And I've got a lot of experienced people. And I went up to the chief and I said to the chief, can we get helicopters up there? Because there were a lot of people up yeah. there. And the chief looked at me and he said it to me in a very interesting way. He said, I can't get my guys above the fire. Interesting. So I looked and I could see that there was a firewall.
3: Yeah.
1: And what he was saying is I can get my people. And then he said, I can save everybody. No, no what he said. I can save any, everybody below the fire. Okay. He was telling me in a euphemistic way, those people up there are dead. Wow. Wow. I don't, I, I don't. I didn't feel the impact of that until that night when i thought about it
2: mm-hmm.
1: but what he was saying was those people are dead yeah now i emotionally realized because i looked at them and i said oh my god there's people are gonna die yeah and he said i i can't put a helicopter up there to blow up the flames are too inconsistent right and he said a helicopter rescue for civilians is very very hard anyway right, right. at that height mm-hmm. but uh, it's really not in the cards given the flames that are coming out of there mm-hmm. um Now, it turns out they did save everybody below the fire. The the 9-11 Commission said it was the most effective rescue so far in American history, Mm. that they saved every person that was conceivably able to be saved. Interesting. So they saved everybody below the fire.
2: Yeah.
1: Luckily, they were able to get above the fire. The chief didn't know that, but a few areas they got above the fire, and they were able to get some people down.
0: You mean climbing up through the the staircase? Yeah, through the back stairs uh, that weren't
1: affected. But the reality is that 90% of the people above the fire died. Right. Um, and probably even before the bu- many of them even before the building collapsed.
0: From smoke and inhalation? Smoke,
1: mostly from smoke. Yeah. Because the smoke up there I mean, was incredible. Yeah. Um, the p- people on the roof maybe survived until the building came down. Yeah. Um, as soon as I finished with the fire uh, commissioner, I went back to the police department headquarters they had set up. Mm-hmm. And I asked to get the president. And I got uh, on the phone one of his assistants who was a good friend of mine. And the first thing I asked him is, do we have air cover? And he said, affirmative. And the minute he said that, he was not a military guy. And the minute he said affirmative, I said, oh my goodness, we're, we're already into we're already into military language, affirmative. Yeah. And it was a funny feeling. And he said, yeah, the vice president, ordered uh, uh, fighters out to protect New York. They should be there by now. Yeah. I said, OK, well, thank God, because we, we don't want to. I said, how many? Um, I said, how many? Um, do we know how many more attacks there may be? Yeah. Or how many planes are out there or something like that? And he said, we've got about seven or eight that are still unaccounted for that we're tracking and worried about. Right. I said, but at this was, point,
0: had they shut down there? Well, I
1: asked him, yeah. I've heard rumors. I said, I heard rumors that they attacked the uh, uh, Sears Tower in Chicago. He said, no. Uh, the Pentagon, he said, yes. Okay. Uh, yes, they had already attacked the Pentagon mm-hmm. by the time this co- conversation uh, took place. I don't think the plane had come down yet in, uh, in Pennsylvania.
2: Pennsylvania. But in any
1: event, he said there were... Seven more planes unaccounted for, and therefore we should at least be ready for possible other attacks.
0: What was your feeling when they told you another plane had hit elsewhere in Washington D.C.? Well, oh,
1: my point my, that we're under attack, and who knows what what was going to happen. I mean, remember, until later in the day when it stabilized, uh, we were not just uh, work, working on trying to save people and mitigate, and we were working on uh, this could be five more attacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be, it could be. Uh, so the first thing we did originally is we closed down the bridges and tunnels, mm-hmm. so nobody else would come in, so that w- whatever number of people we had in the city were frozen. Yeah. And then we tried to get them out. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we closed the bridges and tunnels because in the first World Trade Center attack, it had been planned in New Jersey. Yeah. And we particularly wanted nobody coming in from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um Now. Since that time, we had we had infiltrated those mosques, mm-hmm. which became very controversial later. But I think it was a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. And we knew that they we knew that they probably were not the cause of it because we knew everything going on in those mosques. Right. Uh, and they had gotten no intelligence about this. Mm-hmm. So it had, and and they were not connected to Al Qaeda. Right. Um, and we were pretty certain it was bin Laden mm-hmm. because of the trials there and because of the warnings we had. Uh, We had been warned on uh, uh, during the Millennium celebration in the end of 99 Mm -hmm. that there was going to be an attack at the uh, uh, New Year celebration. Ah. And that was going to be from Bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And um, as we got closer, the the, uh, intelligence turned out to be less and less reliable. Mm -hmm. And I did really consider canceling it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. And instead, we. We, uh, for about two weeks, we did everything we could to make that area safe. Safe, yeah. We went, um, we went below ground. I mean, there's a whole city in New York right below ground. Yeah. We uh, secured that on New Year's Eve. There were police officers below ground, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that nobody could get in there. And that night, when I walked up to press down the, 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 the button that brings down the, the, the the ball, yeah. Which, by the way, is not really true. It the, the, it comes down automatically, and uh. you press a button, and you better get it right, otherwise you look stupid. <laughs> right. And but they try to make it look like mm-hmm. that. I, I probably don't trust the mayor to do it on time. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I walked up that those steps, it was the only time in my life where I thought I might get shot. Mm. Because they had told us so much about um, attacks, I thought, boy, they just really can't protect you. Yeah. Now I I have had a lot of experience with protection. I was the associate attorney general when Ronald Reagan was shot, mm-hmm. and I helped arrest Hinckley. and I helped to rearrange his security afterwards. Mm. Um, so I was kind of an expert even on my own security. Yeah. Because I had done it for many many other people. Right. And. Um, I've been threatened numerous times and it never, it never bothered me.
2: Yeah.
1: That was the one time I looked, I looked at the buildings and I thought about, boy, all they had to do is put one person in there. It's a good shot and right. I'm gone. Right. And it's I said...
0: It's sorry, security is such an interesting thing. Homeland Security has a huge job that they have to get it right every time and be prepared every time. And terrorists. Only have to get it right once,
1: and they don't. Most of the time, they get it wrong. Mm. Think of all the terrorists we catch. Yeah, right. But when they get it right, it's
3: devastating.
1: It's, de- it's devastating. Yeah, it's like it's like looking for a uh, it's sort of, it's like looking for a little thimble in a in a big giant uh, bale of hay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's um, you know the other thing strange about it, Rachel. After it happens, you can go back and find the things you should have looked at. Yeah. But they were buried, right? And I've never, I've never been a second guesser about this, mm-hmm. except a few times where it was obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the latest um, attacks that have taken place, uh, it seems to me, something's wrong in our warning system mm. because you've had these people that are uh, mentally ill, yeah, and they've threatened and they've been online. I think so. I think particularly the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that guy had gone to Russia. Yeah. Um, the FBI decided not to continue mm-hmm. but didn't turn it over to the local police. Right. I'd have gone crazy
3: mm-hmm.
1: when I was the mayor. So they did that to me. Right. If they if they had found this guy who was all involved with the Chechen rebels, uh, had just gone to Russia but decided, oh, we don't have enough resources and they didn't let the New York City Police Department know that it had been a revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have gone crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes you have to do that. You have to stage that yep. in government to get attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've gotten sloppy. But the reality is that one, when you found the things that warned about it, they were buried so far in the ground, mm-hmm. it'd be hard to say that anybody did anything wrong in not finding it out.
0: Right, right. After the fact. And then the
1: theories, the, theory, the conspiracy theory. theories about it disgust me.
3: Yeah. They what are really your, disgust what are me. It
1: almost seems sacrilegious, you mm-hmm. know. I know what happened. Everybody knows what happened. They, so you don't they,
0: believe it was an inside job, like some people?
1: Like say. the CIA did it, or some crazy yeah. thing like that? No, Bush did it. Bush did it. Give me a break. Mm. Give me a break. The poor man. You know, uh, I, I I was with the man a lot during that four-week prison. Man was ripped apart over it, like yeah. I was, and,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he and he did everything. There's not a damn thing we asked him for. He didn't do for us.
3: Yeah.
1: I mean, he, he was he was a I once said that no matter what, <laughs> what, what happens with George Bush, just for the way he reacted after September 11, he'll be a great president. Yeah. And particularly by hitting them back so fast. Mm-hmm. We'd have gotten attacked again if he didn't. I mean, I know this very controversial. Yeah. But particularly the Afghan war mm-hmm. was totally necessary to sock him in the, in the head. Yeah. Because uh, Clinton had been too easy on him. Bin Laden uh, took out a a, a naval ship. Uh, uh, other attacks, and we'd go bomb a field. Mm. we go bomb an empty field. You might as well tell him attack again. Right. And I remember as I was walking along, and this gets a little political, I told Bernie, thank God, Gore didn't get elected. Because I figured if Gore got elected, he might, you know, yeah. he, he might give him the Nobel Peace Prize, who knows? <laughs> uh, but he sure wouldn't hit him hard. Yeah. And I knew Bush, I knew Bush was a tough guy. Right. And that he would, uh, there'd be a hell of a reaction. Now you can you can start debating the uh, Iraq War and all that, but that immediate reaction I think was critical to our not being attacked again,
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: also took out their resources. I mean, right. we the, those um, those soldiers who were on horses and mm-hmm. the, those people are un- un- incredible. Right. You know, none of them knew how to ride horses. Yeah. <laughs> I met them. They came and brought me, and I, I. Too bad we're not at home, because I have at home a. Um, a a knife and a headdress of the first guy they killed. Wow. And they brought it to me with a plaque, and they said, I want you to take this for the people of the city. Wow. I really should give that to the museum. I think I will.
0: Yes, that's amazing. So let's get back to the day of September 11th. What were your feelings when the first tower came down? And where were you exactly?
1: I was in, after I finished with the fire department, chief, I went back to the uh, headquarters, the temporary headquarters we had set up.
0: And what street was this on?
1: So it was on um, it was on Park Place Mm -hmm. and Barrow. Okay. so um, we walked in, the police department remarkably had already transformed it Mm. and they were all on the phone. And uh, it seemed to me as I walked in, so the White House is on the phone for you. So I went into one office and it was this gentleman that I, that I, that I mentioned who worked for the president. And, uh, and I said, I'd like to talk to the president. And he said, um, for, oh, he said, he said, we're evacuating the White House and the vice president will call you back. Mm-hmm. So I had an image in my head that they were evacuating the president from the White House mm-hmm. when he said, I did not realize the president was in Florida and uh, speaking to children and you know what eventually was the case so that was somewhat ominous when he said that i thought my god the white house is being evacuated Mm. he said the vice president will call you back uh very very shortly Mm -hmm. but you have uh air protection uh be alert to the fact that there could be other attacks Mm -hmm. uh i said we're we're anticipating ground attacks that they might have follow, they might follow this up. They might have people in the city mm. and other cities. My police department is right now securing our 130 locations. So we 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 kept a list of terrorist targets. Uh, this started um, oh even before the the uh, 93 the 93 attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, I had been U.S. attorney right. before, which was very helpful because I was very familiar with the joint terrorism task force mm-hmm. I prosecuted their cases so the joint terrorism task force which is a great idea and started in New York FBI Police Department together
2: mm-hmm.
1: sharing intelligence we used to we used to use arrests of terrorists and then we would go through or the FBI would go through their targets
2: mm-hmm.
1: and from that we would create a uh, a list of their most uh, um, uh, their priority targets
2: mm-hmm.
1: from one to about 130 and we kept changing it depending on who we arrested sure. so let's say we, we we had for example uh killed several terrorists in brooklyn about a year earlier so we took out of that building all kinds of plans and based on those plans and then whatever happened all around the country, which we would get, we would give that to the FBI. They would give us, we would come up with this list. And the number one target on the list was not the World Trade Center, it was the Stock Exchange. Mm. Uh, particularly, almost every terrorist that I ever was involved in arresting or got intelligence about, they had a great interest in our bridges and tunnels. Yeah, They had all kinds of plans for our bridges and tunnels. In fact, about a year earlier, we had killed uh, uh, a guy who had all of the plans for a, a, a subway connection in Brooklyn. And we shot him in the building he was in as he was going for the toggle switch to blow up the building. Oh, wow. Uh, so we had a lot of experience with terrorism, uh, but not this particular kind, yeah. kind of attack. Uh, as soon as I got off the phone, 40 people. Mm. But it's a very significant group because it's uh, the police commissioner, the deputy police commissioner, and the chief of the police department.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are the three most experienced people in the police department. Yeah. There's uh, three of my four deputy mayors. Um, if we had lost that group, the city would have lost two-thirds of its senior uh, management. Yeah. Um, so we go downstairs, and we try the different exits and none of them open. Uh, we go back upstairs thinking well, maybe things have gotten better and things look much worse.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now you can see debris going through the streets. You can see like, a, like part of a desk or I don't know what the heck it was. You could just see this debris going through the streets. Right. And all of a sudden two guys come up to us that I think worked in the building. And they said, there's one chance that there's a door, they're all locked but there's one that I think we can get open. Do you want to try again? And we say sure. So we go downstairs and they open the door and you can just a sigh of relief. You can hear everybody say ah. mm. We walk out into the lobby of park, park Place. And when we look outside, you sort of say to yourself, I just went from bad to worse because mm. outside was a disaster. Right. And people were walking in the building cut and one of my police, uh, uh, one of my deputy police commissioners who had been on my police detail and was a, was a, a, a martial arts champion. Mm-hmm. He comes in looking frightened mm-hmm. and cut all right across his face. And he said, it's terrible out there. Yeah. So we got to decide, do we stay in the building or do we go outside? And I talked it over with Bernie and with Denny. And we decided, it's the strangest decision. I mean, strange when I mean, you think of it in retrospect. We decided that if we went outside, we, we, we'd lose less people. Because if we stayed in the building and that building came down, we'd lose the entire top management of the city. Yeah. And at this point, other people had joined us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if we go outside, we, we'll lose some people because they'll get hit. But we're not going to lose everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you guys worried at this point that the second tower was going to come down?
1: Didn't even think of it right away. Right. And didn't know the tower came down.
0: Oh, right. You're still thinking it was the top.
1: Uh, yeah, but but uh, uh, in the back of my mind and everybody's mind is, this seems like an awful lot of damage for just the top of the building coming down. Mm. So we thought that maybe other parts were continuing to come mm-hmm. down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I, and I think then at some point before we went outside, we were told that, that, that the... Um, that the tower had come down.
3: Entirely. Yeah,
1: yeah but we know what that meant. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I expected to see a stump,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, with a lot of the building down. But I didn't, I, I never envisioned an implosion. Yeah. I envisioned it came down like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, So then we did go outside and I held a press conference and I told everyone to go north and get out of there and to remain calm That the police department, the fire department were all coordinated, which they were, uh, and that the rest of the city is being protected against any possible other attack Mm -hmm. because uh, Bernie and I had dispatched about 150 units of the police department to those targets that I told you about. Mm -hmm. So we sent some to St. Patrick's, we sent some up to the Bronx, we sent some out to Brooklyn, the, uh, kennedy airport mcguardia airport mm-hmm. the ones that are on that list and we and this we had run this plan maybe 10 times mm-hmm. as um either as uh as exercises or where we had terrorist threats that nobody knew about
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so th- this felt comfortable we knew how to do this um and then all of a sudden we get on the street we walk about two blocks and i feel John grabbed me again and he starts running me up the block. And I said, John, what are you doing? And he said, look. And now we hear this noise. I look down and he said, I think the second building's coming down. And all of a sudden you see it. You see this thing appear in the in the canyon, you know, Mm -hmm. between the buildings.
3: Yeah,
1: it looks like it, you know, it looks like (laughs) it has eyes or something. Yeah. And then it starts coming up like this. So we grabbed a lot of people. There was one man who had a hard time walking and I said, Bernie, let him use your car. So Bernie took, put a, stuffed a bunch of people in his car and said, get them the hell out of here, civilians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we continued to walk. And uh, the idea now was, where are we going to set up our command post?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, we thought of the first precinct, but they would probably have no power. We thought of the police department and called they had no power mm-hmm. uh, we walked into a big hotel along the way and walked right out because when we walked in the police commissioner the fire commissioner and i we saw that the entire first two floors were all glass mm. and <laughs> said yeah, it could be a hell of a place we're all glass right uh, and finally we decided on the uh police academy okay because the police academy is up around 22nd street. Mm-hmm. It's out of the area, uh, but it's close enough so you can get there quickly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It had power and it's gigantic facility. It's a big facility. And it had all the um, emergency communication equipment that we needed already there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the way, we passed a firehouse in the village and we decided, well, let's make some phone calls from here to make sure we'll call the governor and So we broke in to the firehouse because it had been locked. They were out at the fire. Mm. That firehouse lost 12 people. And it was one that I had been to a lot because when I was first mayor, I lost three firefighters from that firehouse. And we broke in and I called the governor. And when I got the governor on the phone, he said, thank God, we thought you were gone. Mm. I said, what do you mean? We thought you were dead. I said, oh, (laughs) that seemed kind of weird. they actually had drawn up papers for uh, for the uh, emergency governance of the city if I was dead wow my deputy mayor rudy washington was with the uh, governor and he was helping him do it which i i'm, I'm, I'm that's what they should do yeah. uh, but I, I actually didn't know that until much later right. that they actually that it was that bad and when he said it it was a little startling i knew we were in danger but I didn't think people thought we were dead. Right. Right. Um, And I probably probably didn't realize how long we were trapped Mm. because I was so busy trying to figure a way out. It it seemed like it went by very fast. Yeah. Um, And then the governor and I decided uh, to meet at the I told them I was setting up a command post at the police academy. And we decided to meet there. And we made a decision that I think was very, very critical. And it's a decision that I, I uh, uh, lecture people about all the time in an emergency.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We decided that until this emergency was over, we were going to be together constantly. We're going to put our two staffs together. Right. We're going to hold our meetings together. We're going to make our decisions together. And he said, I will join you at the police academy and we'll, from now on, your staff and my staff will be joined at the hip." Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he, he just recommended that or I recommended that, but we both immediately agreed to it. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is because um, there's no time in an emergency for the, the staffs to fight with each other. Mm. And they inevitably will. Right. In an emergency, things go wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're all political. So then they blame someone else. So let's say something went wrong. The governor will be fine with it. I'll be fine with it. The president will be fine with it, but my staff will blame him or Mm -hmm. his staff will blame me or plus you want things to get done like that. Mm -hmm. So we, we can't call Albany, get approval, then go to Washington. So they all came together for the next month and a half. We ran our staff meetings together. He ran the state and I ran the city from our emergency management center, which then moved up to pier 90 something or other.
3: There,
0: there are a lot of stories that are somewhat well known in the last 22 years or so that, you know, are repeated every anniversary. So we know about some of these people that have died. Was, is there a story that stands out to you that people don't know, or someone that affected you yeah, that still kind of haunts sure. you? sure. I'll, I'll
1: tell you one uh, that isn't mentioned enough because you don't know who he is. Um, when I took the first group down, first group of family members, down to the World Trade Center, which we didn't allow for about 10 days. Mm-hmm. And I did it by boat, because at that point, our our headquarters was up on the west side, right at the pier, uh, because we needed unlimited space. Mm-hmm. And we got a boat, and we came went down, and I took uh, as many family members as I could. And... Um, uh, one person was there who had actually been in the building. She worked in the building and her father was a firefighter and she worked for I think Morgan Stanley and she said that I said, what, what, you know, what, what happened in the building? Because Morgan Stanley got a lot of people out because of, a, of the head of security, uh, Rick Rascal, who uh, actually went around and uh, to every floor every, and told them to get out mm-hmm. and actually pushed them out. Uh, he never got out. Wow. He, he was the last one out, like the captain with the ship.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I knew that story. She said, but you don't know. I wish I could find out who this man is because he was standing by the elevator and he was helping people get on and pushing them in and pushing them in. And I was one of the last people pushed in. And I said, well, you, you come in now. And he said, no, 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 uh, uh, let's get the young people and I've already had my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. And she said, when I got da- as I was coming down, the building came down. She said, and that's gonna be with me for the rest of my life. I think about it every night.
3: Yeah.
1: And I could see his face saying, I've had my life. You people are young. You go first. I'll okay. get out. Don't worry. Right.
0: So, do you do something on every anniversary that is special to you?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, a couple of things. I go to the ceremony mm-hmm. all the time. I go to church. I go to the ceremony, um, and I get together with my with my people
2: mm-hmm.
1: at night, and uh, and then uh, then many other things depending on who needs me or. Yeah. Uh, I do something with the tunnels of towers. Mm-hmm uh, every year. Um, but I get together at night with the people that I survive with.
3: Yeah.
1: And, um, it's very, I think it's very important to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I try, and I tried afterwards very, very hard to get the right treatment and the right help mm-hmm. for a lot of my people, some of, some of whom still resist it Yeah. because of macho. But the ones who, have gotten it, have really come through it really well. Did you get treatment for yourself? No, but I think I did by talking about it so much. Yeah. I mean, and by, uh, by getting it for them, I learned an awful lot about what the therapy is and how it works. And, yeah. And an awful lot of it is really talking about it.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting because I had to go to therapy to deal with it way after. I couldn't at the beginning, but it was very hard to speak to somebody who hadn't gone through it. And even when I watch... Um, you know, horrible things that happen, um, buildings coming down, children being shot, whatever it is, unless you're part of it, you're just watching, you're from the outside looking in, and it's hard to really feel the pain yes. that people go yeah, through. yeah, and
1: through. that's why those groups are so important.
0: Yeah, and so for me, talking about it is good, but it's interesting. I still feel the emotions like it's yesterday.
1: Yep. If I get into it, it's like that. I have a very hard time to this day going past that part of town. Yeah. And my son lives down there now, oh. lives a few blocks south.
3: Yeah.
1: In fact, um, in the days afterwards, I was told nobody's ever going to go back there. Mm. Now there are three times more people living there. Yeah. But it's very hard. Um, and sometimes I'll take a circuitous route so I don't have to pass it.
3: Mm.
1: And I've only been to the museum twice. And both times, uh, because I had to go, the opening. Yep. And then I took President Obama through it. Wow. And otherwise, when people want to go to the museum, I make arrangements for them and send somebody else.
3: Yeah. That's a hard museum to walk I can't,
1: through. I can't, I can't, um, and I've never watched a movie about it straight through. You Even haven't? In the documentaries I've been in. Wow. Uh, I watched part of them, and I put it off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: So I just want to
0: tell you a little bit, because my, if you, I don't know if you remember, two days later, an uh, Associated remember. Press um, gentleman took a photo of me. I was at Bellevue looking for my fiancé, and just to sort of give you I, a I picture. Do, I, I do remember. I was 26 years old. I had just gotten engaged to who I thought was the love of my life. He was 32. His name's Andy O'Grady. And just saying his name makes me cry. Sorry.
3: Sorry. I didn't mean to do this, Um, but I lost everything, and going to um, Bellevue that day, I remember looking on the computer and seeing that he might have been taken there, and so with hundreds of other people, I'm standing in line, and it was interesting because, you know, everybody made flyers, and... I don't know why we did that. It was like what everybody did, right? right. So I got the, the most recent photo that I had, right? and I was laughing because I was like, oh, God, he would hate this photo, right? But I picked the photo because I loved his smile, and I just went where I heard that he was. And you're talking to the people in front of you and behind you, listening to their story, and each one was worse than the other, and it's mm-hmm. mother's crying and, and children crying looking for their parents and it was just awful and when I got to the front of the line they checked his name and said he wasn't there and there was a bunch of sorry my god no no, that's all right there was a bunch of um reporters and they said just tell us about Andy I thought it was such a great way to let people know who he was and that but looking back that's what I thought but as a 26 year old girl I was like you have to help me I don't know what else to do I've lost my whole future my whole life and it was as a young girl, the worst thing that I've ever been through, that of I can course. imagine being through, and people don't understand how that affected people's lives, and it changes the trajectory of who you are um, at that age, and probably anyone who went through it, but it was an awful what thing. It
1: changed the tra- trajectory of the country
3: yeah, and right. the world. Yeah, I
1: mean, and It was a... It was a it was an unreal event in terms of uh being able to describe the magnitude of it
2: yeah
1: it's one of the events uh, so i mean one of the ways to measure the magnitude of it it's one of those events where everybody remembers where they were when of it happened of
3: course
1: uh, i'm sure this happens to you when you tell them you were involved in mm-hmm. it, but people almost feel compelled to tell you people have come up to me in airports and train stations and stop me because yeah. they want me to know where they were
3: right and i don't know i don't know them right
1: but they'll tell me you know i was in uh, grammar school at the time and the teacher took us all out of class and or someone will say i was uh, at my desk and um not, not even somebody involved in it right i was at my desk and we all got and we all had to leave and,
3: and it's the way uh, they connect to that yeah, day. or
1: then people will come up to you who were connected to it you know, yeah uh, right right the, the ones who were talking to somebody in the mm-hmm. building or yeah. and then i also lost um uh I mean, that afternoon when i had the second press conference um i was asked did i did i uh, um, did i hear the tape of the solicitor general and his wife talking on the f- phone mm-hmm. uh, that was a plane that went into the pentagon and i said no i haven't had time to hear anything and i said oh, the solicitor general oh yeah barbara barbara his wife died one of my best friends wow they had been in my office five days earlier. Yeah, and I'll tell you that I had a, I had to stop and go behind mm-hmm. the governor so I didn't cry, because the death that I had heard about up until then I expected. Mm-hmm. I expected. I knew I knew what happened, and by the time it was an hour later, I was already in a zone yeah. of playing mayor. Right? right. Right. But when they hit me with somebody I would never have thought of. Dying in that plane, it was like, oh my god! And then I would say to myself, "You can't feel this now. Mm -hmm. You gotta feel it later."
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: You gotta feel. You gotta. You gotta stop it. And you gotta just concentrate. You gotta. You gotta get this out of your mind because you're not gonna make the right decisions if you get all emotional. Right. Get it out and think about it later.
0: That's right. And that day, I were I was working at Bloomberg News. That day, I worked until five o'clock. I didn't want to go home. And I didn't really shed a tear until a month later when I was in the shower and I was by myself and people had stopped coming around. Like you're so surrounded by people at the beginning, right? But then they go back to their lives. And you don't, your life is the same, you know? So I think that's when it really hit me and and it changed my life.